Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're in our second message in Galatians on the Free to Live series. And as we look at the first five verses this morning, we're going to talk about how we need to understand this book and why it is important to us as we are parents, grandparents, individual Christians, singles, teenagers, because if we don't grasp this, we really don't understand the nature of salvation and what God has done for us in Christ. This book is six chapters long, 149 verses. It'll take you about 15 or 20 minutes to read it. But if you can grasp it and apply it, it will change the way you think as a believer. Now, here's what we need to understand. All of our lives, we are told to do better, try harder. It's that way in sports. It's that way on the job. It's that way in the arts. It's that way in life. Every message you hear is, we want to do better. We want to try harder. That is the opposite of the way the Christian life functions. The Christian life functions on the premise that God has already done everything that has to be done for salvation. In other words, I can't do anything to merit or to earn the salvation that God has provided. I cannot add anything to the finished work of Christ. When Luther read this book, it revolutionized his life. You and I are here today in an evangelical church because a Greek monk, Martin Luther, read this book and realized that the just shall live by faith and the Reformation was begun. This book is essential to you and I understanding the truth of our salvation. There are two primary doctrinal books in the New Testament. One is Galatians and one is Romans. Galatians is like a sketch and Romans is like a finished statue. Galatians gives us insight into it, and so I want us to look at it beginning into why we should study it and why you need to teach these things to your children and you need to learn these things for yourself. Number one, no one is immune from getting off track. None of us are immune from getting off track. Do you know that if you left Albany, Georgia today with a compass and that compass was one degree off and you were trying to head to the North Pole, you would never get there. You would end up somewhere in the North Atlantic because one degree off continually will lead you further and further off track when you're trying to go north. Nobody is immune from getting off track. We are kind of like Billy Joel's song. We all go to extremes. We swing like pendulums, and God wants us to be balanced and centered in who Christ is and what he's done. Secondly, the gospel is worth defending. The gospel is worth defending. Now, the gospel is being attacked today at a, unlike any time in my lifetime and probably in your lifetime. It is being questioned. It is being ridiculed. The resurrection, the gospels, the inerrancy of Scripture are all under attack. And Paul doesn't water down these things. He defends them. And you and I need to know how to defend our faith. Number three, there is a false salvation which leads to false security. 
There is a false salvation. And I say that in light of the fact that in America, so many people say, well, I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritually minded person. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. I'm better than a lot of other people. You know, I never would have shot anybody at the mall this week. That wouldn't have been me. And so we get this false salvation of judging ourselves by other people rather than judging ourselves by the Word of God. And it leads to a false security because you can always find somebody that you're better than morally, ethically, from a character or integrity standpoint. But that's not what saves you. Number four, hypocrisy will cause those who know you and those who love you to reject your faith. You see, the worst thing that can happen to us is that we be hypocritical. We can do that by being one thing at church and another thing outside of church. We can do that by somebody seeing our car in the parking lot on Sunday, and then at work we don't act anything like a Christian. We can do that at home by telling our kids to do things we're not doing ourselves. And so hypocrisy can lead to a rejection of our faith and say, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. I want to submit to you that that's not Christianity, that there is a Christianity clearly defined in the New Testament that tells us how we are to live and on what basis we live and where the power for that living is. And it is in Jesus Christ, not in the things we do, but who he is in us. And so let's look at the seriousness of the hour and begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, in the first sentence, Paul lets you know that there's a problem. He doesn't do any cordial talking. He goes right to the point. He says, I'm not sent from men nor through the agency of man. And Paul is going to deal with the ideas of his leadership and of the nature of the gospel. Now, one of the things that we need to always remember is that nothing important has changed. You realize that? All of our new discoveries, all of our new technology, nothing important has changed. From the beginning of time until today in 2007, you still have to get saved by grace through faith. That hasn't changed. The sun still has to be where it is. The earth has to be where it is. Everything that is essential to life and to eternal life is the same. There is no new truth. We may discover some facet of truth that we've never known before, but nothing important has changed. We have people that are telling us now that we are enlightened and now that we have evolved and now that we have grown as humanity that we've learned things so much so that we don't need God. But I would submit to you that nothing important has changed. Now, Paul is dealing with people who wanted to change something. They're called the Judaizers. They wanted to change the nature of the gospel. And several times in this letter, you will see Paul talking about the truth of the gospel. And they're trying to change the nature of the gospel to say that, yes, you're saved through Jesus Christ, but 
You need to do the Mosaic laws. You need to keep the ceremonial laws. You need to keep the traditions. And Paul, if you read this in the original languages, is furious. He's angry because they are troublemakers inside the church trying to say to people that simple faith in the grace of God and in the cross of Jesus Christ as a sufficiency for salvation is not enough for salvation. They wanted to add to it. And anything that you add to the gospel takes away from it. And so he's passionate about the health and the unity of the gospel and of the church. So look at him. He's a messenger called by God. Paul, an apostle. Not a self-appointed preacher. He's called by God. His calling was by God on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. He says he's an apostle or an envoy or a messenger. He's appointed by one with the authority to send one, just as the president appoints ambassadors to another country. That ambassador represents the government of the United States. He's appointed in an appointment process, and he carries the authority of the government behind him as our representative in an embassy and in a foreign country. Paul says, I'm an ambassador I'm an apostle, an envoy, appointed by Jesus Christ. Not only was he called by God, he was ordained by God. Look at what he says. Not sent from men or through the agency of men. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 1.1, he was sent through the will of God. Not sent from men. Now you think, well, why did he add that? He's just wasting words. There are no wasted words in the Bible. This was an attack, and we're going to get to it a little later in this message, on Paul's apostleship. Was he really an apostle? Was he the real deal? Now, I want you to look at that little word, not. There are two words that you need to know. You need to know them yourselves, and you need to teach them to your children. Not and no. It'll save them and a lot of heartaches. You need to know what not to do, and you need to know what no means. In fact, God knew that English-speaking people would be the dumbest people on the planet, so when he put the alphabet together, he put N and O together in the alphabet. So if you know your alphabet, you know what no means. No means no. When you tell your kids no, you mean no. At least you should mean no. Don't let them whine until you say yes. You have to know what no means. Now, here's what that means. And there's a principle that you need to remember. All definitions, by their very nature, are a way of exclusion. All definitions. In other words, if salvation is something, then there's something that salvation is not. If something is this, then it's not that. All definitions are by nature a way of exclusion. It means that truth means there's error. It means there's a right way of thinking. It can't be one thing and a contradictory thing at the same time. That's why sometimes preaching and teaching the gospel sounds negative. It's not that it is negative. It's that the things that are opposed to it 
are negative to your faith, they will put you in the minus position in your faith because truth has meaning and words have meaning and one word can't mean everything. In other words, to be saved cannot mean you can be saved. It's exclusive. Keep the definition up. It's exclusion. To be saved means you cannot be saved by grace alone in Christ alone, and then run over here and say, but all roads lead to God. You can be saved if you've been saved and baptized, or you can be saved if you've been believed in Jesus Christ and gone through the Catholic Church and taken sacraments every week and ingested the body of Jesus when you take those sacraments, or you have joined this religion or done that. It's either one or the other. It can't be both. The gospel is not various ways to get to God. There's one way. God is narrow-minded. He says emphatically in his word, you come to me, you come through the cross. You don't come through the cross, you spend eternity in hell no matter how good you are. You cannot do things. You cannot take the Lord's Supper to make you saved. You cannot be baptized to make you saved. You cannot join a denomination to make you saved. You cannot be good enough or your good outweighs your bad to get you into heaven. There's one way and they are exclusive of each other. They are contradictory ways. The Judaizers, Paul was here saying it is by grace through faith and the Judaizers are over here saying, yeah, all of that, but if you're really saved, you keep the Mosaic laws. You have to become a Jew first before you can be a Gentile, but before you can be a saved Gentile. You have to do something to help God out in your salvation. And Paul says, not going to happen. Not on my watch. Not while I'm here. You're not going to teach that kind of stuff. And, and it just shows you that that's true in the realm of personal conduct. It's true in the realm of convictions. And the reason that we have confusion today and the reason we have spirituality today is because we have so many contradictory methods. And when you have a non-absolute, post-modern, post-Christian worldview, then all roads lead to God. And who are you to say that if I'm sincere, I don't get to go to heaven? Hey, folks, I didn't make it up. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at the person that wrote the book. His name is God. He gets to define the terms because it's his salvation. So he defines how it works. I don't, I don't make it up. I just tell you what he says. And if you read it, you can find it. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure this out. You read the book of Galatians. You read the book of Romans. You read the gospel of John. And you can figure out there's nothing you can do to get yourself saved. It is by grace through faith. And the gospel is under attack today. It is politically correct to attack the gospel, not to attack any other faith, but it is politically correct to attack Christianity. And it's becoming more and more so, whereby the new hate crime bill now will make it possible for preachers and for Christians who say anything against Islam in any way, shape, or form to be threatened by the federal government because it sounds like a hate crime it's not a hate crime to say, we love you enough to tell you you're going to hell if you don't go through Jesus Christ. That is not hate, that's love. If somebody's about to walk in front of a car and get run over, it's not hateful to say, hey, stupid, stop. 
You're doing it because you care about what happens to them. You care about their eternal destiny. Now, let me tell you why this is important. In 1924, in the Presbyterian Church, there was an affirmation called the Auburn Affirmation. For those of you that are Auburn fans, it had nothing to do with you, although you think everything has to do with you. (laughs) But it really doesn't. The Auburn Affirmation was signed in January of 1924 by 100 ministers in the Presbyterian Church. In May of 1924, it represented itself, and 1,300 ministers in the Presbyterian Church signed it. 10% of all the ministers in the Presbyterian Church. Here's what the Auburn Affirmation said. It said that the doctrine of biblical inerrancy and truths such as the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus are theories that ministers are not obligated to accept. The reason that they're debating about whether certain people can be preachers in their church is because when you get to the point where it's a theory instead of a fact, anything goes. And if you want to know why this church stands for the inerrancy of Scripture and for the sole authority of Scripture, I'll tell you why. We're not going to go down that path. Everybody else may, but we're not going down the path of saying these are theories. These are facts, and we'll go to the wall for those facts. Paul is an apostle to the churches of Galatia. Now, he doesn't say, hey, I love you guys. Hey, you know, remember when we, remember when we went to the lake that weekend? He doesn't say any of that. He goes straight to the point. There's no cordiality at the beginning of this letter. He even does that to the Corinthians. To the Corinthians, he's cordial to them. But to the Galatians, he's so fuming about what's happening among them that they're about to deny and forsake the gospel that he goes straight to the point. There comes a time as a preacher, there comes a time as a leader, there comes a time as a parent when you have to say, that's enough. Cordiality is out the door. We're just going to get down to the facts here. Here's what the problem is. And that's exactly what Paul does. And so he begins with the seriousness of the hour. Then there's the seriousness of the subject, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are two words that Paul used often. They're Greek and Hebrew greetings. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Now, Paul is fighting these people. He wishes them grace and peace. But he's fighting them because they're saying you can earn, you can merit, you can deserve salvation. And Paul is saying, no, it's justification by faith. That's the way Abraham came to God. That's the way everybody in the Old Testament came to God. That's the way we come to God, and that's the way we come to God, is by faith justified by Christ. Now, they would have agreed with him on everything about Jesus Christ, except they would have said, Paul, you just forgot one thing. You forgot to add the law. The law does not save. The law was never intended to save. And while we do not have modern-day Judaizers among us, I mean, I've not heard anybody that's saying, you know, we need to start practicing all the Mosaic law. I I don't know one member of this church has ever said, you know, I really think we need to figure out what to do if somebody goads our ox out of Leviticus. You know, we need to figure out how to do all those ceremonial things. I don't think anybody's doing that. But we do have modern-day Judaizers 
that are in the Christian community today, 2,000 years later. Let me just give you some examples. Anyone who believes in adding faith in human merit over divine grace is in fact a person with the spirit of a Judaizer. That my merit can be added to grace. My works can be added. Have you ever thought about this? Let me tell you, this, this is how subtle this is. Have you ever thought about this? I just thank God that he saved me by grace through faith. I thank God that I didn't do anything to merit this. That is only because of the blood of Jesus. Now, as I agree to serve in this area of the church, I know God's going to like me more for doing that. You're trying to add something to the unconditional love of God, and you can't do it. You're working for God's not going to make him love you anymore. You work for God because you do not love him, because you do love him, not because you're trying to get him to love you. You serve God out of love. You don't serve God out of a sense of duty or obligation or hoping if you do enough that you'll get a little bit more when you get to heaven. It is out of obedience and love that you do that. Secondly, not only by adding human merit, but adding any book. Any book. The Book of Mormon. The Koran, there are elements in the Christian community today in the Middle East that are saying you can still be a practicing Muslim and be a Christian too. That is absolutely impossible. You can't do it. It's impossible. By the way, you can't be a practicing Mormon and get to heaven. I know that's a disappointment to them. They're not going to get any planets, and they're not going to get any virgins. They're going to get there and find out that it's not the place where they thought they were going. And they're good moral people. They're sincere people. They're upright. But listen, if, if Baptists would do what Mormons do by tithing 10% of their income, we could do what Mormons do. I mean, they're, you won't talk about people that can keep rules. They can do it. But you don't add a book written by a guy who is a polygamist and say, this book has the same authority as the Word of God. God does not reveal himself to anybody after the book of Revelation closed. That's the last written word we've gotten from God. There are no more written words coming. I know there's a guy now, you've seen him on the news, that he claims that he and Jesus have, boom, they've kind of come together. And now he's Jesus. And his followers are following him because he says he's Jesus. I say he's on drugs, but that's just me. <laughs> Thirdly, by adding any rules, I've already alluded to this, that you must be baptized to be saved, or you must add anything to it by adding any rules. And then finally, anything that exalts what I do as deserving of merit, anything that exalts what I do as deserving of merit over the cross as the only way to Christ. Folks, I, I've preached, I don't know, how many, how many, what sermon number is this? 1100 or something 1100 sermons here and that doesn't count Wednesday nights and other things but I want to tell you not one sermon ever merited me the favor of God not one God didn't look down and say well look at that boy you know bless his heart he's preached over 1100 sermons in that church let's let him go to heaven not one sermon would get me into heaven and I don't care how good it was I preached some good ones some of you weren't listening but I did preach some good ones <laughs> You weren't paying attention, but there were a few good ones. There are at least five good ones out of that 1,100. And I'm, I'm going to my grave with that. I'm just telling you that right now. So here's Paul. 
They, they're attacking him personally. They're going after him personally. And you know that happens when the messenger has the right message, the messenger will get attacked. And so Paul is dealing with this group that's trying to undermine him and it happened with Moses, it happened with the priests and the Levites questioning John the Baptist, it happened with Jesus and the Pharisees. Paul's being called a second-rate apostle. Well, yeah, Paul, yeah, yeah, yeah you're an apostle, but, but you're not like Simon Peter because, you know, he walked with him for three years. And, and you're not like James and John because, after all, you know, they, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration and you weren't there. And Paul is saying, I wasn't ordained by men. Peter and James and John and the 11 didn't have anything to do with my ordination. I got ordained by God. I'm an apostle called by God, not through the agency of men. God met me on the road to Damascus, and that was my ordination, and that was my calling. By the way, Paul, an apostle, the qualifications for an apostle, and you know this, I just want to clarify it in case you've forgotten it. Paul, an apostle, an apostle had to be someone who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ and chosen by Christ to be an apostle. That's why the gentleman that was chosen in Acts is not one of the apostles, and he's never mentioned after that because the church jumped the gun. God had the 12th to fill the spot. His name was Paul. He met him on the road to Damascus. That was the 12th apostle. If you read the book of Revelation, there's 12 seats up there for the apostles, that means that the guy that the church chose didn't get it. God chose Paul. Now, you can debate that if you want to. You'll be wrong, but you can debate it if you want to. But Paul is an apostle because he had seen the resurrected Christ when he was struck on the road to Damascus. He knew immediately what was happening to him. That's why there are no apostles today. I know there are apostles on TV. They tell me they're apostles. I'm apostle so-and-so, and if you send me so much money... I'll bless you. I'll pray for you. I'll give you a prayer cloth. I'll heal you. I'll do this. I'll do that. Well, they're not apostles. So if they're lying about being apostles, what else are they lying to you about? Hello? You there? See, the only way you can be apostle is to see the resurrected Christ. And I want to tell you something. If they had seen the resurrected Christ, they wouldn't dress the way they're dressing. And they wouldn't have enough jewelry to buy out the Bank of New York all over them. They'd be trying to figure out ways to die to themselves. Apostles were never flaunted. They were tasked. They were given a task to go out and share the gospel. And it cost them dearly. It cost them their lives. So here are these apostles. Now, look, he's got grace and peace. We're not going to take time. We've already looked at that. I, I want you to look at this quote, though. It's going to come up on the screen. James Montgomery Boyce says, To choose law, as the Galatians were doing, is to fall from grace. To live by works is to lose the peace with God that was purchased for believers by Christ's atonement. So there's grace and peace, and there's the gospel as Jesus in verses, verse 4. And verse 4 is a summary verse of everything that Paul is going to say in Galatians chapter 1. He says that God did this to rescue us from this present evil age. John talks about that in 1 John, 1 John 2, 16, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And isn't that the essence of rebellion, to want something that doesn't belong to us? Isn't that what happened to Eve? You'll be as God's. That sounds good to me. I'll take it. And Eve ate us out of house and home. 
It's, a, it's the rebellion of the kings in Israel. It's the rebellion of Saul that would not be a king the way God told him to be a king. It's the rebellion of Judas. All through the Scripture, you see it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, a desire to live life on our own terms. Now, let me tell you about false religions. False religions appeal to our pride. The gospel appeals for us to be humble. False religions appeal to our pride. And the second characteristic of false religions, false religions are like a lot of politicians. They'll tell you anything to get elected. And then they don't do what they say they're going to do. There's a lot similar between a lot of people at election time and a lot of false prophets. They promise what they don't produce. So he says to deliver. He says he has come. He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue or deliver or to lift us out of. It's the same word used of Joseph being delivered out of his affliction in Acts chapter 7. It's the same word used in Acts 7 of the people of God being delivered from Egypt. It's the same word used of plucking the right eye out if it offends you in Matthew's gospel. It's, it's to take out, to remove. God is not taking us out of the world in the sense that we die and go to heaven, but he's taking us out of being influenced and controlled by this sinful world. God has delivered us out of that from the power of evil. Now look at what he says. He gave himself for our sins. That better translates, he gave himself in behalf of our sins. He died on your behalf. He gave himself on your behalf. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for yours. He gave himself for our sins for the benefit of. It, it carries the idea of connecting what he did at the cross with us. Remember, we've talked about this before. When Christ died, you were there with him. Because he died for your sins. Your sins were there when he died for you. God saved you from this present evil world by dying on your behalf. Why? So you can come in and get the bondage of the law and start saying, well, I got to do this and I got to do that and I got to do this. And, I gotta. And, and by the way, you'll meet Christians who will tell you that. Now, if you're a really sincere Christian, you'll do this and 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 you'll do this. And they'll give you a list. They're like the Pharisees who added over 600 laws. And Jesus came and said, only two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, listen, if, if you live those two out, you won't have to worry about somebody telling you what to do. You'll do the right thing. If you live out loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, I promise you nobody's going to have to come and correct you about you're not living a certain way because you'll be living according to the greatest of the commandments. The second, he said, is as great as the first. Because how do we reveal that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, they come by the church and they see our car and they come in and we're at the altar praying. No, that's not how they do it. We love them like we love ourselves. Now, what are you supposed to teach your kids? What are you supposed to learn? What are you supposed to live out? This simple truth. You didn't do anything to deserve salvation. I know your mama told you that you were the sweetest, cutest little baby that had ever been born, born on the planet. But I'm going to tell you, I've seen some of your baby pictures and it ain't true. Mm -hmm. 
I know your grandma pitched you and she said, oh, honey, you're just so cute. We're just so proud of you. And yet you've never done anything wrong. And she lied to you. You're a sinner and you can't do anything to fix that. If you don't know that, you can't teach that to your kids. You're a sinner and you can't do enough to please God. You can't be good enough, moral enough, right enough, ethical enough, have enough integrity, give enough money away. I want to tell you, I don't care if it's Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. They can give a gazillion dollars away. It's not going to get them into heaven. If they don't come through Christ, they will have had money and riches to invest in kingdom business that they think that by doing good, it gets them some marker somewhere. But it doesn't. It is simply to the cross of Jesus that we cling. We come to the ground at the foot of the cross, and there we see the life and the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and we realize that Christ did not die for himself. He died for us. He died for me. He didn't die for all those pagans over there in the other part of the world that that don't live in Christian countries. He died for me. Raised in a church, taken to church, from the day I was born, brought up in a church, went to Sunday school every time the doors were open, filled out the offering envelope, polished my shoes before I went, pressed my clothes, wore a little tie as a little seven-year-old boy walking around in the hallways. You know, I, did, I did all the stuff, sang in the youth choir, I did everything, but I was a sinner. And I didn't get saved because I walked down the aisle and shook the preacher's hand and said, Brother Mathis, I just want you to know that I, 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 I want to be saved. I didn't get saved because of that. I got saved because one day Jesus Christ convicted me of sin. And I realized I wasn't a sinner because I'd lied to my mom. I wasn't a sinner because I'd stolen stuff out of my dad's drugstore. I was a sinner because I'd sinned against a holy God. And when God showed me that I was a sinner, I needed to know how to be saved because I knew I couldn't fix that. Because I had sinned against God. I could go apologize to my mom and I could apologize to my dad and I could repay my dad, but I couldn't fix what I'd done to God because God's holy and I couldn't talk to God because God's holy and I knew I was a sinner. And so in faith, I said, Jesus, I'm lost and going to hell unless you save me. I'm without hope. I don't have a chance. I can't be good enough unless you come into my heart and save me. I'm lost. I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to die in my trespasses and sin. I deserve to be lost forever. You would be just in sending me to hell. But you sent Jesus to the cross and you said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And Lord, today I confess that I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died for me. And I ask you to come into my heart and live today. And you know what? That's the only reason he did. I didn't help him. He helped me. I didn't do anything. It was already done. And that's why Paul ends verse 5 by saying, to the glory of God. Because folks, if you can take any credit, now listen to me, we're, we're one minute away. If you can take any credit, any credit, a minutia, an ounce, a drop of credit for your salvation, then God doesn't get the glory. In fact, 
it means that God owes you something because you did something and he's got to pay you for it. God doesn't owe you salvation. He offers you salvation. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. For more information about Sherwood, visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. Thanks for listening and join us next week for another podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church.